Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. Today on the podcast, we have Colin Crane. Colin is the Director of Athletic Performance for Men's Basketball at the University of Georgia. He previously spent time at Mississippi State, Florida, Chattanooga, and Missouri State. A former collegiate basketball player himself, Colin Hunter and I dive into a handful of topics on this episode. We go over his process, getting to design his own weight room for the basketball team at Georgia, and we jump down a handful of rabbit holes about his process of biohacking within the team. There are a ton of practical and applicable takeaways from this episode, and we loved having him on. As always, enjoy the episode. Me and you have had a couple conversations about it and some of the pieces you have in your weight room, but I'm interested to hear more about the creation process and renovation that you did with your weight room because... It's something that is a potential pipe dream of mine, but if it comes to fruition, I want to have an idea of like the process you kind of went through to get your room to where you wanted it. Yeah. You know, I think uh, when any strength coach gets the opportunity to design their own space, um, obviously the thought of that, it's very exciting, right? Um, You know, this was the, the first room that I was able to design from the ground up. And so in years previous, I had seen other coaches do it and they, you know, uh, you're kind of exposed to what you see on social media, what people are posting. It's not just you get with sore necks or you get with play or you get with hammer strength and you do the renderings and then there's the execution process. There's so much more, um, so much more than that. There's going to be challenges along the way, depending on if you are building from the ground up a separate facility or if you're renovating an existing space, it's it's not going to go exactly as you planned it. So I would kind of put in a buffer, you know, time period um, for you to do some troubleshooting and for you know you're you're going to run into errors. Then when it came to equipment, that was kind of the easy part. You know, I, I will say we. We went with Sornex. They did such a great job with our football weight room. Um, we have such great relationships with them on campus. So working with them was probably the easiest part of the job. Uh, I worked specifically with Jeremy Ebert. And, uh, you know, he he can attest to this. There's a lot of text, text message conversations late night. Um, and he and I both have families. And, he, you know, he's extremely accommodating. Uh, from that point of view. So they did a phenomenal job. You know, we worked with a ton of other vendors as well, including Kaiser and and Play did our flooring. Um, we got a couple specialty pieces of equipment from Atlantis. Um, you know, we did our bumper plates and dumbbells through Intech. Uh, so it, there were a lot of moving pieces that required, you know, really good communication on all fronts, but everybody did a really good job. Um, so now here we are, we've been training in the, 
the new facility for about three or four months now, and it's been phenomenal. You know, this is the first ever uh, basketball training facility at the University of Georgia. Um, while you were, it's funny that we're talking about this today, actually, because as as we're sitting here talking, our weight room here at Illinois State is getting completely gutted today, um, and we're completely redoing all the flooring. Um, and so as I'm sitting here recording this podcast with you guys, the rest of my staff right now is out there fucking moving a bunch of weight right now. They fucking hate me, but it's all right. Um, but as you were going through the process outside of, you know, the typical right racks and barbells and bumper plates, what were some like the non-negotiable pieces of equipment that you're like, I really need to have this in my new space? Yeah, I think uh, we're working with a around a 4,000 square feet. Uh, space which is good for our size of a roster um, it's a rectangular shape with a lot of pillars um, the pillars were weight bearing and structurally we had to leave those um, so we we ended up putting a lot of uh, kaiser implements around the columns uh, but i would say some of the non-negotiables for us was um, probably getting some of our uh, squat machines and, and different different modalities to train lower body for our our basketball athletes, you know, ranging from five foot ten to to seven feet tall. Um, not that we have to be fully committed to one, but it's just nice to have options. So we went with the Kaiser Squat Pros, um, which is a standing squat machine. Um, we have the Atlantis hack squat machine, which is a, a phenomenal machine that they make um, for our athletes that we don't uh, feel comfortable maybe back squatting with yet. Um, and then also if we're working in rep ranges where maybe the barbell squat is not the best exercise to use, we can definitely use the machines there. Um, and then we, in addition, we got the Atlantis pendulum squat machine. So it's a very quad dominant machine, um, but it allows for the, uh, you know, the lower depth in those exercises where the athlete can feel a little bit safer in those depths, uh, still having a neutral spine because they have kind of the safety of being in a machine as opposed to a, you know, a, a freestanding barbell movement. Um, as well as, you know, the Atlantis back extension machines are are have been very useful for us um you know i will say typically I, I would say in the american population and the athletic population as well um you know low back pain low back tightness is always going to be something that you hear quite often and it seems like with the implementation of the different ways that we've used our back extension machines um, and the frequency at which that we've used it those uh those complaints of the the low back tightness and low back pain, those seem to have gone away. Um, you know, and we've done other things to alleviate that as well. A lot of uh, and specific, you know, anterior core training and bracing and, and things like that. But I definitely think that the, the Atlantis 45 degree back extension machine has played a part in that. Whenever you introduced a lot of this equipment especially like the different variations of squat machines it's probably correct me if i'm wrong but a lot of these guys first time seeing any of these pieces of equipment is that correct yeah without a doubt okay they had never seen some of these machines before 
So whenever you went into like implementing them, did you have an idea of like, okay, this guy, whatever struggles to hit depth in a traditional squat. So maybe I put him on this, or did you, did you kind of just like program with them, let guys test them out. And now do you offer like autonomy within maybe like your squat pattern selection of like, Hey fellas, we're going to squat. I know you guys might use this one. You guys might barbell, you guys might go here. How do you kind of like navigate all those different options of like a squat pattern with your guys? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question because that's something that we thought about going into the new facility. Um, so initially, you know, when we got in our new facility, it wasn't like a uh, we didn't have like a ribbon cutting service where it was fully operational on day one. And this is you can kind of put this back in your notes for your all's new facilities uh, if those come to fruition. You know, we were technically, we could be in our facility, but, you know, the sound system wasn't in yet. Or we could be in the facility, but the lighting was going to have to be modified. And so there was going to be a lighting crew working in here from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And then we're coming in for a 7 a.m. group. Um, so essentially, kind of what we did for the first couple of weeks was I was able to train kind of small groups and get them in the room. Um, and in that time, that's the time that I used to introduce them to all the new pieces. When I had groups of anywhere from an individual athlete to maybe a group of like four and teach them, you know, how to use these new machines. And then from there, you know, kind of building in when we would get back in more of our moderate to larger group settings, um, from the individual sessions, we kind of realized those machines were not gonna be for everybody. Certain guys just still love training with a barbell and that's completely fine. I, that's, you know, I think in the, in the grand scheme of things, we would, we would all as strength coaches love that. Um, however, there are certain athletes that when they get to certain depths, they're not, their movement efficiency is not as good. Um, maybe we're, if we're looking at the spine, there might be a little bit of lumbar flexion and, um, so those are the athletes that we tend to put on the pendulum squat and the hack squat machines because of the design of the machine. It allows the athlete to kind of uh, sit back into a, a, uh, a pad, which keeps their spine neutral, essentially. And so it's kind of training them to, to push against that pad. And then from there, we hit the lowest depth we possibly can. And so it, I think it just gives them a little bit of an awareness um, when it comes to keeping that neutral spine. So right now, I would say the majority of our team still trains it, you know, at the rack, doing barbell squats, different things like that. Um, and the, the machines are more of a modification. You know, the machines are not where we start. They're kind of a place where we can get there and, and modify movement. As well as if we have more of a developmental group, we can we can do both. You know, we can do more of our strength rep ranges with the barbell training, and more of the high you know the hypertrophy rep ranges with the machines. It sounds like those small groups and how you were able to do that probably worked out perfectly. Because I mean, you may have structured it that way anyways, but it sounds like you had to structure it that way, and then it gave you just like one on one or one on two or one on three time with guys to kind of introduce these new concepts because putting a guy on a new piece of equipment he's never used before in a group of eight dudes and not being able to just like stand there and monitor him. I'd be like, ah, oh, shit. No, 100%. 
Um, it worked out perfectly. And those are, you know, these machines are not something that we said, hey, we're going to get eight pendulum squats. Um, so the pendulum squat and the hack squat, we just have those as kind of standalone machines. And we do have multiple back extensions and multiple Kaiser squat uh, machines that we use pretty frequently in our team sessions. But it, it worked out perfectly. And, and like you said, you know, those machines are not something that they're somewhat foolproof, but you still want to be able to monitor them as they use it, you know, any type of new piece of equipment. All right. So starting to transition a little bit from specificity to a little bit more broader stuff. And I think I'm going to kind of merge two questions into one here. Um, obviously, as a coach, you'll evolve in your iterations of how you see programming and philosophy evolves as well. So kind of coming into Georgia, how did you kind of present like your big rocks of training to the team? Uh, as you kind of evolve that iteration from Mississippi State and how you just kind of view the basketball developmental um, training kind of model. Yeah, you know, the the philosophy question is, is such a tough one to answer um, briefly. And I think it also depends on who you're talking to. Um, you know, whether I'm talking to our head coach or, you know, a, a player or a player's parents in the recruiting process. I think um, the verbiage you use and kind of what the the, the main bullet points you're going to hit are somewhat different. Um, you know, broad picture, optimal health leads to optimal performance. So setting a foundation with our athletes about um, how to learn about their performance, how to learn about their health, um, is very important to me. You know, I view uh, our profession as a teaching profession, uh, 100%. So I think the best teachers end up being the best coaches um, for the most part. So I think, uh, you know, setting the foundation of education is, is definitely very important for me. And then kind of leading into more of the specific things on on how do we what's important to us in our program? Um, what are the what are the KPIs? Um, what's important to our staff? Um, in the basketball culture, you know, you do also have to consider what you're preparing them for. Um, you know, a good number of our players are going to have the opportunity uh, to play professionally. So that's their, you know, at this point in time, obviously they're student athletes and we, we intend for most of our players to get a degree here at the University of Georgia. But when they first leave here, their best opportunity at making money could potentially be playing basketball. So I have to take that into account and prepare them for that. And I've seen it a lot with our, our former players that I've had from other universities that go on and play overseas, you know, a lot of them don't get the, they're not fortunate enough to, to be at the clubs where they have their own strength coach. They might have an ATC um, for obviously health purposes. They have to have one. Um, but for the most part, a lot of the performance stuff is done on their own. And so that's where it has led me to put a much bigger emphasis on the education side how can we build a really good foundation for these guys to learn about training here, learn about nutrition, learn how to take care of their body. So when they are on their own, you know, there can be a quick uh, phone call or FaceTime with me and the athlete 
while they're overseas to kind of get them back on track. But for the most part, they understand what goes into being a high level performing athlete. Man, that's a great point because I think that when you work at this level, to your point, like a lot of these guys, whether it's the G League, whether it's the NBA, like, or it's a small league overseas, like they probably, most of them will have the opportunity to play somewhere if they'd like. And to be honest with you, you saying that was like the first time I've ever thought that, yeah, if you go to a small league in the middle of nowhere overseas, like, yeah, you're probably not going to have a strength coach. You're probably going to practice for four hours a day and like your training is going to be on you. So one thing I've thought about doing is we have folders here and um, I just put their sheets in every week. So now like that I've been here for a couple months now, like their folders are getting pretty big. And I think that I've always thought like after the season, I'm just going to, as my parting gift, which half of them will throw it away, but like just give them their folder up over their like whole time here as kind of just like a ceremonial type thing. But also if those guys play overseas, like they might be better off just going back through that folder and doing some of the days that I've written for them than just like going to a local gym and trying to like piece something together. So yeah, I really like that thought. Um, to, I have a, I have one quick, one yeah, quick caveat before you go, Hunter. This yeah, is, go uh, this is like two, uh, two off seasons ago when Drew Lloyd, so Drew Lloyd is from Chicago. She plays for the Seattle storm. And so she trained, she trained at our facility for one of her off seasons. And I was talking to her about her, uh, cause during the off season, WNBA, most, players go play overseas right to make more money and she had gotten to the point in her career where she was like had made enough money where she just wanted to train at home and stay in the united states and we were talking about some of her off-season experiences going and playing overseas and she said one year when she played overseas in china their athletic trainer was a fan that the team found who had watched a lot of videos on youtube so she was like this guy was taping her ankles and she's like where did you like learn how to do this she's like oh like i watch videos on YouTube about being an athletic trainer. And I, and I like this basketball team. So they let me come join the fucking program. Like that's absolutely wild. But so yes, it gets, it gets wild overseas sometimes. Definitely. That's hilarious. Um, So to dig a little bit deeper into like your training. Now, I think that most strength coaches probably agree on like, and this kind of goes into our last question, but I won't frame it exactly like our, exactly like our last question most strength coaches probably agree on like i don't know anywhere from 70 to 90 percent of training like big rocks foundational principles like a lot of what we do is similar but what would you say is like your 10 to 15 percent that you feel like you do a little bit different than most of the field um whether that's from a training perspective and then we can also talk about some of like the quote-unquote like biohacking type stuff that you you have ventured into yeah you know so i like you i agree with what you said I, I think the majority of us are doing variations of the same thing from a training standpoint um man we place a really big emphasis on the the foot and ankle um which you know maybe five ten years ago that might have been different than everybody but i think at this point we're all seeing the importance of those little things you know, from a standpoint of traditional lifting, we still do some of that because at the end of the day, uh, to be honest with you, I think our, our athletes like it, you know, they like being in the rack. They like feeling like they've, um, maybe hit a new max or, you know, things like that. Um, I think branching off into kind of your, some of the things that you do with the force system, um, I think, Things like that have have helped me a little bit. Uh, 
trying to implement some of those principles into our training, weave those in, uh, you know, taking aspects of the, or at least considering the fascial system, you know, some things that, that Matt Aldred is doing at, at Furman, um, some very high level work. Um, not that he's the, the first to do it, but I, I think he and I have had enough conversations uh, over the past couple of years to definitely say that, that it's worth um, diving into. Um, but you kind of mentioned like the biohacking stuff. You know, I think it, biohacking is getting a lot of attention right now. And some of it is useful. Some of it might not be useful. But I think that's where it's very valuable on, on do you have the ability to know how to read research, find it, know how to um, dissect an actual study and identify which studies are you know, kind of published in a way where it was just almost as an advertisement versus something that's an actual legitimate study. Um, and so I think the things that I've thought about is where stress is stress and there's only so much the, the human body can take. Um, I think our athletes do a, a really good job of adapting to what we throw at them. I think they do a really good job at you know, uh, managing academic stress and stress from their position coaches and things like that. Um, so how can I help them better recover? That's kind of where I got into the biohacking stuff. So that kind of led us down the road of, and it, it kind of started with us working with some outside consultants as well. Um, a company called Vision Pursue, which does a great job weaving in meditation and um, some other, you know, bio elements to that, you know, the grounding, the, uh, you know, sun, sunlight. So those, those are in breath work. Those are kind of the, the foundation of what we introduced our guys to this year. Um, and we've, we've seen some pretty good results, not just, you know, uh, subjective good results, like, yeah, you know, coach, we, we feel better, but just from an objective standpoint, you know, injury rates and, um, you know, when we're doing force plate measurements coming off of a day off where all we did was some of these biohacking elements, um, we're seeing a, a little bit bigger spike. So, you know, could it be that we're, we're finally actually filling up you know, we're, we're addressing that recovery bucket and we're not uh, overfilling some of those stimulus buckets. Um, so the main things that we've, we've addressed is breath work, grounding, sometimes done obviously just on the, the natural way, you know, skin contact to the earth, going barefoot. Um, but if we don't have access to that, we, we have used PEMF mats, which is the, it essentially um, does the exact same thing. It simulates the same thing. Um, and then the red light therapy, different wavelengths do different things. So that was a, you know, there's thousands of study studies done on red light therapy. Um, you know, the near infrared light, infrared, um, even aspects of blue light, which is more of the wavelength that's going to be the first light as soon as the sun comes up, which um, 
you know, through learning about this through our consultants could be one of the more important wavelengths of light to help. Obviously, it, it uh, helps regulate circadian rhythms. Um, so there, there are certain basically retinal cells in the eye that detect this form of light, which then has a whole downstream effect, um, you know, through hormone secretion and, and different things like that, brain neurotransmitters. Um, so we, we've seen some really good results in, you know, guys take to different things. Um, you know, obviously like cold water immersion is a big one right now as well. Um, it's not enjoyable. So, you know, to get, and we have the, the ability to get our entire team in our hydro tubs. That's probably just not realistic. We, we did, we started with that to try to kind of create a culture around it. Um, I would say probably half of our athletes stuck with that. And some of them do it religiously now, you know, in the morning, you know, they come in the facility, the cold water immersion might be the first thing they do before a shooting session or before a lift. <laughs> so I think through teaching them about these various things that can help them from a quote biohacking standpoint, you know, these are things that they can take with them after they're done playing here. Um, you know, just going back to the cold water immersion, we have an athlete, obviously right now we're going through finals week um, with exams and there's, he's still doing his cold water immersion. And he knows it's he it's more of a mental alertness thing, the uh, spike in dopamine, which is going to improve mental alertness, uh, memory, and, and different cognitive aspects. So it's kind of cool to see our guys, to teach them about, you know, four, three or four different biohacking methods and then see them kind of take each one, um, choose the one that they prefer and they feel the benefit and then see the consistency there. Just a quick pause in the podcast to talk about our sponsor, Protein 2.0. Protein 2.0 is the ultimate protein sports drink. It is packed with 20 grams of whey protein isolate and electrolytes. Protein 2.0 is your go-to solution for quick muscle recovery and hydration. It is available in a variety of fruit flavors like orange mango and strawberry watermelon. I probably have at least one a day here at Illinois State. Give your athletes something better for you and better tasting after their next workout. Head over to drinkprotein20.com slash needle for an exclusive offer. Just fill out your information and a rep will shoot you an email with a first time purchase offer. That's drink protein and then literally or put the number two, right? Drink protein two, the letter O.com forward slash needle. Power your athletes with protein 2 Mike, you got something first? Yeah, I have, I have uh, a couple things. First yeah. one is on the cold water immersion, what is the, the actual protocol that those guys go through? Yeah, so the temperature, the, the research, we've looked at dozens of studies and we've kind of settled on if we can get the water to anywhere from 50 to 55 degrees, preferably around 50 degrees, that would be ideal. Um, and then three minutes is kind of our time frame, which is not, you know, it, it's an easy sell to our guys. Three minutes is not a long period of time. Um, you know, if they were to come in and need to use a different type of recovery modality that would take 30 minutes or 45 minutes, I could see it being hard to get them in the training room to do that. But with a quick three water, immer three minute immersion, 
uh, it's it's pretty conducive to their you know student athlete schedule. Um, and then along the the lines of the protocol, just trying to do it pre-training, so as as early in the day as we can do it, preferably. Um, there's a little bit of gray area, you know. There's people out there talking about how not to do it after after weight training, after hypertrophy training. Yeah. Um, I still kind of i I try to avoid doing it after, if at all possible. So we're more doing it not necessarily for the uh, not necessarily for the anti-inflammatory effects, but more of the uh, the cognitive effects. The uh, the cold shock proteins that can help, um, you know, mitigate inflammation and things like that through free radical. Um, that's kind of our purpose behind that. And then um, for all these things, how are you guys tracking wellness or recovery? Are they doing questionnaires? Are they wearing boot bands when they go to sleep? What is your process for um, creating objective measures? In years past, I have experienced using questionnaires. Uh, Whoop was a, a company that we worked with back at Mississippi State. Um, I've also worked with Aura Ring to look at more internal metrics, HRV, and you know heart rate during sleep specifically. Um, right now, I, I've, we're using more objective measures that are actually in the weight room. Um, you know, force plate metrics, um, where the wearable that we've chosen to use is Kinexon, um, with no, that's just an accelerometer. So I understand that there's limitations to that. There's no internal metrics per se. Um, but I would say just a lot of it is based off of feedback from the athletes, which I know it is really kind of hard to measure, but um, for any of us that have worked in this field for any extended period of time, you know when your team is healthy or you know when your you know your training room is full of guys that are banged up. And so very, very fortunate right now. Um, you know, our guys have have kind of bought in to some of these recovery modalities, some of the biohacking, the things that make them feel better. And just having this overall sense of of improved health. And like we said earlier, you know, optimal health can help lead to optimal performance. I think uh, last follow up on real quick. Yeah, go I'll ahead. Let you, I'll let you take it. What you said after sunlight, you said um, F mats. Is that right? EEMF mats. So it's pulse. What, what is that? Magnetic frequency. And so some companies, uh, Beamer, B-E-M-E-R is a company that, that makes them. Um, but it, it basically just creates the the a charge um, that simulates grounding. The downstream effect of using it would be improved circulation, um, vasodilation of the, the microvasculature, um, which is just, again, gonna help blood flow, mitigate um, you know, inflammation induced from, from training. Um, those are the, the main effects there. Can you touch on a little bit of the the maybe big rocks of why you use red light therapy? You touched on the blue light stuff, and I think that a lot of people have come to know that because of the prevalence of screens 
and screen time and all that. But like red light therapy is something that I've obviously seen a ton about because it's very popular. And this, I should have just looked in the research myself, but since we're chatting here, can you just talk about like some of the benefits to that and why you do it? Yeah, so I'll give you kind of the overview first, um, which don't don't take this as an advertisement, but these are just the 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 claims that have then been proven by some studies. And then I'll kind of give you more of the detail behind it. Um, so the red light therapy, depending on what uh, wavelength you're using, penetrates to a different level. So the, uh, I, I want to say it's 650 nanometers is going to be good. It's more superficial, um, could be good for skin health, could be good for wound healing, um, things like that. And then as you get into more of the uh, near infrared light uh, wavelength, which can get up to the one that we use gets up to 850 nanometers, that's the one that's going to actually penetrate the tissue. And it's going to, it can even penetrate bone from what we've read. Um, there's, you know, there's an anti-inflammatory effect from the red light therapy. It, um, because it does penetrate the tissue and can <clears throat> have some type of effect on the mitochondrial part of the cell. So this is the big thing that we looked at in the research. Um, Obviously, the, the mitochondria is, you know, quote, the powerhouse of the cell um, responsible for energy production and, and things of that nature. So with this, um, with its interaction with the mitochondria helps uh, upregulate the mitochondria's ability to run cellular respiration and essentially um I don't want to say create more oxygen because I know that's not the right verbiage, but improve the body's utilization of, of oxygen. Um, and then which upregulates also the body's ability to produce ATP, which is the usable, you know, that's what the body's going to use for energy. Um, so that that's kind of the, I guess, the watered down strength coach version of, of of why we are currently using red light therapy no that's what that's what i was looking for because anything in more detail would have went over my right. head so uh yeah, we we need the we need the watered down version for sure. <laughs> yeah. so especially with stuff. stuff especially stuff like this so last thing about that what is the what is the setup and the protocol you use for the red light therapy in an ideal world if you could tell guys exactly how to run it so ideally we would want to do and again, this is just based off of, I feel like I'm kind of regurgitating um, some things that I've been told by some of the experts and what we've read. Uh, but ideally, you'd want to do the grounding or the PEMF mat first. Um, then do, actually, one we haven't talked about is breath work. You'd want to do breath work next and then finish with the red light therapy. And then cold water immersion can be done in conjunction with that or by itself but again cold water immersion preferably earlier in the day got it one of my questions early on was going to be kind of how you structure all this but i think that gives me an idea so you'd go grounding breath work breath work red light therapy yep i in an ideal world so, so would be the, the best order digging into into the breath work like you said a little bit more so what uh when you say breath work what do you, you mean exactly there's so many different types of breath work 
um, the ones that were the easiest sell for us with our athletes was going to be kind of a Wim style, Wim Hof style breathing. Um, and so we do that pre-training, which it, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are familiar with the Wim Hof breathing style, but the way that we execute it, it's rapid power breathing essentially. And for this, you know, a lot of the breath work that, that we should do is breathing in through the nose for the Wim Hof style breathing only. We don't worry about that. So we breathe in and out through the mouth because it allows us to, to get more oxygen in by breathing in through the mouth. Um, but it's basically 30 rapid in and out breaths, full inhales, full exhales, no pause in between. Um, and it's a period of hyperventilation is what it is. And then that's followed by a breath hold off of the exhale. So the athlete takes their last inhale and exhale and holds it. And then they hold it for as long as they can. And so we do this in our warmups in conjunction with our balance work. I'm just trying to check as many boxes as I can, because that's the biggest thing with breath work is it does take time. And so if you don't, uh, if you're not going to commit to it and actually dedicate that time to do it, it's really hard to implement it. And so what we've tried to do is we will do our foot and ankle work and our balance work kind of in conjunction with some of the breath work and the breath holds. And so we would do multiple rounds of, of that hyperventilating alternated with our breath holds pre-training. Um, and then we also, we've done some experimenting with, you know, shift, trying to do it more of a parasympathetic shift, either post-training, post-practice. Sometimes we're on the road and we're in the meeting space and um, we've just watched film and it's nine or 10 PM and the guys are wired. We can do some breathing techniques to help have that parasympathetic shift um, we've tried different things like box breathing, which would be a four second inhale, four second hold, four second exhale, four second pause and hold before you start the next inhale. Um, we've tried double inhales um, through the nose and then a slow exhale through the mouth. Um, that's typically what we would do post weight training session. <clears throat> and we've done all this in conjunction you know, working with some of our outside consultants and, uh, you know, trying out some new meditation methods and using an app for that, which has been really good for the, the athletes. I've used like the post training breathing to get that parasympathetic shift is the pre-training stuff you do with a 30 rapid uh, inhales and exhales. Is that just the opposite? Try to, to try to get them into a sympathetic state before they start training? Essentially, yes. It's it's okay. very it's very stimulating. Uh, you feel great after doing it. Um, getting more oxygen to the brain, getting more oxygen to the working tissues that are then gonna, um, as well as uh, from what I know about it, resetting your carbon dioxide sensors or receptors for carbon dioxide, um, which is also important. And so I think. The breath work is actually really low hanging fruit in the world of, you know, biohacking or performance improvement. Um, we actually had a, a quick little visit from Brian Peters, who has his podcast, uh, Chasing Edges, former NFL player. Um, he now does 
you know, performance training, consulting work and things like that. Uh, great visit with him talking about breath work um, and just how you can, he works with some MMA fighters and, and various athletes like that. And, and basically if you can't, you know, you can't breathe efficiently, you're not going to be able to fight efficiently. And so um, I think we have been able to open our, our players eyes up to how this affects their performance and certain guys that maybe um, didn't excel in the area of uh, aerobic conditioning are now feeling a little bit better subjectively uh, you know feeling like this is probably one of their better conditioned seasons of basketball that they've played and in all reality we haven't done um, you know anything different from a conditioning standpoint one of the things um, you mentioned about uh, low-hanging fruit that I think about is which breathwork 100% falls into that. And I've heard so much talk, especially about, I think it, I have the book on my bookshelf, but the oxygen, oxygen advantage, talking yeah. about how like people start layering on training and, and all this different stuff before a human can actually like breathe properly. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's whatever. You don't need to worry about that. Let's just train, train, train. But it's like, that is one of the most foundational elements of being a human being. And a lot of people's breathing is so screwed up that that's functioning at 50% uh, yeah. capacity. And another thing that I've thought about in that low hanging fruit is vision. And I always think like, especially as we alluded to earlier with the blue light and screens, athletes are on their phones and I'm looking at a screen right now. I'll probably pick up my phone after this. Like I'll be on my computer a little bit more today. Humans in general are just on their phone so much that vision, I think, is a low-hanging fruit as well. And I think that coupled together, that could probably equate to some to some huge benefits. One question with the breath work um, that I had was, what was your guys' reception the first time that you introduced? Probably more of that like pre-training, fast breathing stuff, because it's probably, picturing myself doing it, it's probably like a little goofy to do. Um, some can of the posts- Can I add a- Content a question to that too. Once you're done, Hunter, go ahead. I was just going to say some of the post-training stuff, like they've probably heard of meditation before. Some calm, slow breathing isn't that weird to them, I'm assuming. But some of the pre-training, deep, fast inhales might be a little weird. So, what was your guys's reception to that? Um, and then, Mike, go ahead and add your. And then, so same question, but then also, what was your coaching staff's reception to like all these ideas toward biohacking? Because there's a lot of things you have. And then I have more follow-ups after that, but if you could start with those two, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So I think big picture with some of the, these bio elements, um, the reason why I think the, the buy-in was so great from our players is because the staff was actually bought in on it first. So this was something that we talked about as a staff and, and a lot of it was with our outside consultants. That's kind of what started the conversation. And then obviously, you know, your staff kind of directs questions to us, the performance specialists. And they're like, hey, you know, what is this stuff legit? You know, is this something we would actually get some benefit from? And then it creates the conversation of, well, yeah, th this stuff actually is really beneficial. It's just whether or not we have the time, um, you know, certain head coaches, assistant coaches have different expectations for what they want their training, their team training to look like. Um, so as long as, you know, you're on the same page with your staff, it can definitely work. And so really, uh, all the stuff that our players are doing, 
our entire staff is doing. And even the the using the Vision Pursue um, company that we're doing our some of our meditations through, they have an app. Um, you know, our staff uses the app. So very much, this is a program thing. This is not a, you know, necessarily a, a Coach Crane thing. I think if if that were the case, um, you know, if that were the case, I'm not sure I would spend as much time doing all this stuff. Um, but because I know it's important to my staff, and I do know there's a benefit to it. We've seen the benefits. I've obviously researched the benefits. <laughs> so all that stuff is there. Um, but knowing that, you know, if I'm just going to use a crazy example, but if our team does, if our team average bench press isn't 315 pounds, um, you know, our, our staff is not going to be upset about that because that's not really the expectation, right? That's not what we've talked about. That's not uh, what's important to our staff, but what is important to our staff is, is overall health and performance. And so I think what we're trying to do a good job of is, communicate well as a staff and make sure that we are we are taking the steps to get to where we want to get to as a program. And that's not just, um, you know, wins and losses and, and those types of results, but, you know, thinking more on our side of things, the performance results and taking the, the necessary steps to get there. And for us right now, the necessary steps is including some of these bio elements. When if you were to talk to a a team or a program that is uh, less resourced, I guess than you guys, it's like okay, I don't have access to some of this like the red light stuff. I don't, I might not even have access to like some of these higher type type stuff. What would you say is like, hey, these are like the three things that, regardless of resource, time, whatever, that everyone should be doing and everyone can be doing. So I think that's the the best part about some of these bio elements is they're really kind of all rooted uh, in in nature for the most part. So it, I, I'm going to sound kind of like a a strength coach hippie for a second, but like the further we really get away from nature, that's where we lose some of the benefits of these bio elements. So to me, you know, a lot of this stuff it's low hanging fruit because. Uh, it it can be free. You know, if you think about the breath work, it's free. If you think about the grounding, you know, taking your shoes off and going outside, it's free. You can, you can definitely, uh, it's just the time. That's, that's the true cost of some of this stuff is time. Um, now, obviously the red light therapy is a modality that is going to cost money, but there's also studies showing that the first, the specific wavelength of light, right when the sun comes up, is also very beneficial to health. Um, so again, waking up and getting the consultants that we've talked to, they they've asked us to get ten to fifteen minutes of sun exposure in the morning, and that to get the majority of the benefit. That's what it takes. So that is the the cost: ten to fifteen minutes of our time. Um, you know, the cold water immersion, I think you can kind of, you can make the argument that that can be done uh, pretty inexpensively as well. One thing that I try to do for the cold water immersion is just take a cold shower in the morning. Like I get done training in the morning and I just 
hop in a cold shower, which it probably should be before after this conversation, but it's just kind of how my schedule allows. One very specific question I have about the sunlight exposure, and it may be dumb, but I've I've been thinking about it because I also try to take that into account, is if I'm driving to work and the sun is coming up at that point, do I get the same benefits if it's through the windshield or window? Or do I need to like roll down a window and get direct sunlight exposure? So from everything we know about it, the answer is, is no. We do not get the same benefit. Um, the specific wavelength of light does not go through, uh, depending on you know what type of windows you have, but it doesn't go through tinted windows. And typically it's not <clears throat> direct exposure. So ideally you need to be outside. Got it. And then oddly enough though, you, we were also told, you know, you can technically be in the shade. Hmm. So much of it is, uh, is through the, the retinal cells in the eyes. And so we have to see the light. So, the, uh, you know, to the, to your point, you can't be outside, but then have sunglasses on to get the full benefit of the sun exposure. You said you can or can't? You cannot. Got it. Okay. And then so, the next question I had, or last question on this idea of light is people talk about blue light potentially later in the day affecting circadian rhythm and melatonin and those things. If let's say you wake up before the sun comes up and you want to get that exposure right away, could seeing blue light from your phone help to simulate some of the things that seeing the sun would do? Obviously, I don't think it's the same or as beneficial, but could you use uh, blue light to your benefit in the morning when you first wake up? So one thing I'm, I'm a little bit unclear on is like, because to me, all we hear about screen time and phones is negative. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't... I just don't think it's going to end up being the same thing, but also, and this, I'm kind of posing it as a question. Um, you know, I had used a wearable probably five to six years ago. AO is a blue light wearable and you basically wear it as a, it's eyewear and it creates that blue light right um, in near proximity to the eyes. And that's kind of their thought process. Their, all their studies that they had done was based in that. But what I don't know is, is that blue light the same type of blue light that is emitted from an iPhone? I, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, to me, I would think, you know, limiting screen ex exposure is going to be a positive thing. Yeah. And I've also noticed, and this is a N equals one situation, but whenever I first get up, wake up in the morning, if the first thing I do or one of the first things I do is grab my phone and either just scroll or as simple as like unlock it and read like one text message. I notice that I'm much more likely to have a headache in the morning or like throughout that day if I do that. And if I give myself 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes before I actually end up looking at my phone, I just feel better. So again, N equals one, maybe I'm just weird, but one thing that I've- It's I've worth looking realized. into. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mike, do you have anything else right. on that? So, no, okay. no. The only thing I have, do you guys see those uh, those Ray Ban smart glasses they're coming out with? Those things are wild. No, I did not. Have you seen those? They're like, I haven't seen them. They're, it's like it's Ray Ban's new thing that has like a thing on the glasses, and it like plays music. It like answers phone calls. You can send texts and stuff. It's really weird. 
I saw, really uh, I don't know if it was Apple, but they were coming out with, and maybe this is a <clears throat> way down the line thing, but I swear it was Apple was coming out with glasses to where it's like a Google map, but in your glasses. And it would like give you information about what you're looking at. Freaking crazy. It's, it's, all right. So Colin, last question for every guest, and then we'll get you out of here. So what is something that you do or think that a majority of the field would disagree with? limited towards something that we haven't yet talked about so far yeah um man this is such a tough one because i think what we've done a great job of in our field is learning from each other so and i'm not saying you always have to agree with with a colleague to learn from them i think i've learned way more from from disagreements and uh maybe some gray areas in training um but to try to come up with something uh, for the sake of answering the question, I would think about, you know, so much earlier in my career, I felt like my identity was being a coach. Um, and I was told also by um, colleagues and, and, you know, mentors growing up um, in the coaching field, it's going to be really hard to have a family. It's going to be really hard to, you know, find a spouse that understands the uh, the demands behind the job and find a spouse that's going to understand the sacrifices that that may have to occur um, on both sides, of course. Um, so, you know, I think what I maybe uh, hopefully I I wouldn't I'd be down on our field if if too many people disagreed with me on this, but you can be a really high level coach and also be a really high level husband and be a really high level dad. And you can, uh, you can allocate your time um, in a way that everyone knows that you, you love them. Everyone knows that you value them. Um, obviously for the young coaches, um, maybe this is, this answer is for the young coaches that would be listening to this podcast that um, are worried about that down the road. Um, I would say you, you can do it. Like you, it, you have to be intentional about it. Um, I, I will say a lot of my time that, that used to be allocated towards reading new research or looking at different training modalities or, um, or, you know, unfortunately even networking with other coaches, some of that time is now allocated towards me sitting with my kids and watching a Disney movie and, you know, the books I read now are very different than the books I was reading five, 10 years ago. Um, I'm very much interested in, you know, basic human development from, you know, childhood development books to, um, you know, I, I guess I should preface this by saying I, I have a five-year-old son and a two-year-old daughter. Um, and they are the best things that have ever happened in my life, but they're also can be a handful and they're so fascinating to me, man, how, how quickly they learn, how quickly they're growing, um, and how no, it just, it's another lesson to me that no, no two people are the same. Um, no two kids, no two athletes have the same learning styles, um, personalities, you know, it's just so interesting to me. And so, you know, the long-winded answer is, is that. You know, I think in this field, we're told too many times that 
we're going to have to sacrifice time with our spouse or sacrifice and, and not have a family potentially if we want to do this profession. Um, so I would encourage everyone listening to ignore that and, and be the outlier and, you know, uh, be, you know, we, we pride ourselves in being high level practitioners and, and being the, the person that is sought after for all this performance information. But, you know, I, that is nothing to me if, if my kids are not seeking me, you know, for guidance and influence, or if, if my wife can't come to me um, and know that we have a, you know, a, a great um, and trusting relationship, you know, all the other performance stuff, you know, really means nothing. I love that answer. And after hearing you talk about it, I wish we would have dug more into like the, the being a strength coach and having a family piece, because I have a year old daughter. And I think that perspective shift that you have after having a, a child just like changes your mindset about so many things. But to your point of early on in career, you find your identity as being a coach being getting married helped shift things away from not just being a coach but I think having a child just like completely created a new identity in a good way for me of like okay I'm not just a strength coach like I'm first and foremost first and foremost like a husband and a dad but one thing that you mentioned was like how you're looking into the developmental piece of of childhood and, and growing up and one thing that I thought is absolutely insane is my daughter um, turned one in October and probably like two weeks ago, she took her first steps. And now she's like walking all over the place. We can be like, Elsie, stand up. And she'll stand up where she's at, walk over to us. We can like grab her like turns. It's just insane to see their development. And then the last thing I wanted to say is that I think it's really important in this field as well to kind of piggyback on your answer to find a job that kind of like fits your um, ideals and, and things that you hold true in your life because I think that a lot of people will see a job and be like oh the logo sweet the pay is good and not take the opportunity throughout the interview process to see if it's a good fit for them and maybe it's going to be a great logo and great pay but their their boss is going to expect them to be at work from 6 a.m to 6 p.m just in case somebody walks in the weight room and like those are the things that I think you need to sniff out in an interview process to not just see is the pay good is the logo cool but like is this job actually going to fit what I hold true? And I think asking those questions in the interview process, some people might be scared to do because they're like, oh, I don't want to ask about a work-life balance because we're supposed to be like these meatheads that just sit around at our desk all day. But like, again, now that I have a daughter, like I want to know, are you going to expect me to be there 12 hours a day? Or if when we get done with practice and I don't have anybody else coming in, are you cool with me leaving at 1.30 if we're done for the day? Um, and I think that asking those questions is something that I took a lot more seriously because when I interviewed for this job, I did have my daughter and it was like, okay, it's not just me and my wife. My wife's going to be at work at five. So I'll sit around. Like if I can be out by one 30, I'm going to be out by one 30. So I appreciate you saying that. And I think that's a great piece of advice for a lot of people that probably listen to this podcast. So I appreciate 100%. it. hundred percent. Awesome. Well, Colin, where can, uh, where can people find you if they wanted to reach out to you with, uh, with some questions? Um, you know, I'm not extremely active on social media, um, but I do use it to, post various content and network with other professionals. Um, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handle is at Coach Crane UGA. And um, typically, you know, I'll, I'll reach out to different colleagues and respond to messages and 
and have various uh, conversations stemmed from social media, I think it's been a, a really good tool. So they can definitely find me there. Thank you guys for listening to the episode. Find us on social media at MTN underscore perform. And another shout out to our episode sponsor, Lumen Sports. To find out more about Lumen or to download a free demo, head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes. See you guys next week.